it's Nick Walters again with the National Hemp Growers Cooperatives Webinar Wednesday and the Industrial Hemp Growers Digest podcast. It takes me a while to get all of that out uh, to be able to say welcome. And we are tickled slapped to death to have yet another great guest on with us this week. We've got uh, the quality of the folks that we've had on, we haven't slacked up yet, as far as I can tell. And so today is not uh, as a is certainly not an exception to that rule. Lawrence Serban is with us. Lawrence uh, is the CEO, Poobah Granddaddy of Hemp Traders, and you can learn all about them at hemptraders.com, and and he'll talk more about that. But uh, Lawrence, thanks, man, for spending some time with us today. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for having me. Absolutely. Look, we love to find out. Um, you physically are where right now? Where do you headquarter out of? Uh, I am in the Los Angeles area. I'm in the suburb of, L, uh, of the actual city of Los Angeles called Paramount, uh, oh, okay. just north of Long Beach, California. Oh, OK. OK. So we would just call you on the, the greater L.A. OK. Would yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. And so and so for those of us who are from Mississippi, like I am, L.A. means lower Alabama. So we're glad yeah. that's great. So we don't we don't have any miscommunication about that of exactly kind of where you're hanging out. So that's terrific. That's terrific. Well, Lawrence, tell us about kind of your background. And we really love knowing your hemp aha moment. And where did you go? Oh, man, this is it. And I really All want right. to get into it. Uh, I will I'll quickly give my kind of credentials and then I'll tell you, uh, go into how I got into it in my aha moment, because there certainly was one. Okay. All right. So uh, I got involved in hemp uh, in 1990. Uh, I started my business uh, uh, before that. Oh, uh, got involved in 1990. I began to work for an organization called the Business Alliance for Commerce and Hemp. And within within less than a year, I began to run and I became the, uh, like the president of it. Uh, after about a year and a half running that, I left and I started my company, Hemp Traders, in 1994, uh, starting out with selling hemp fabric. Uh, since then, it's expanded and we now sell, you know, we're the largest supplier of hemp fabric, twine, yarn, rope, webbing, and fiber uh, in the country. Uh, right now in the United States. Uh, I've also uh, served on the board of the uh, Hemp Industries Association and uh, was also at one point uh, the president for two years of the HIA. Okay. And uh, I also served on the board and the chair of the California Industrial Hemp Advisory Board. And I did that oh, from like 2017 to 19. Or so uh, when I did that, uh, I've also started uh, uh, three companies, hemp traders, but I have uh, two newer companies, Hannah Grove, which is manufactured hemp particle board, and then uh, Riverdale Hemp Factory to uh, grow and uh, process hemp fiber and herd uh, for that purpose. So uh, back to your original question, what, when was my aha moment? Sure. And that, yeah, that actually came in 1990. I had just graduated college and uh, I had thought I might go into medicine and I thought I might go into law, but it wasn't really my cup of tea. And I 
figured that I probably should do a business. You know, that that kind of felt more more right to me. And I also figured that was a way to make money you know, in America <laughs> to have your own business. Right. So uh, what I did was I also figured if I'm going to do something like that, I want to do something that would be beneficial for man, humanity, the environment, you know, all of the above. So uh, during college, I had done a little research on him and I had read uh, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Mm. And so here I am, you know, maybe, you know, a few months earlier than that year, I'd read a little bit about, you know, hemp and everything that it could do. And I remembered uh, I woke up, it was maybe a few weeks, you know, a week or two after I graduated college. And I woke up one moment and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, that's it. I'm going to start a hemp company. You know, it's, it's been outlawed all these years. It can do all these things, you know, and make paper, twine, yarn, cordage, things like that. Why not? You know, I should do that. So got really excited, uh, looked around, and I could not find uh, anything made out of hemp anywhere, you know, uh, in the U.S. Nothing, you know, nobody had it. Nobody knew about it. There wasn't anything that I could really find, although... I did talk to a few people who were experts in the field to confirm. I was like, all right, well, can you really make paper from hemp? And they were like, yes, you can. You know, can you make rope or cloth or cloth? Yes, you can. You know, so I learned that all of it was really possible, but I couldn't find anyone doing it. So uh, I ended up uh, I ended up buying a copy of The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And I was thumbing through it. And on the very back, there was a little article and it said Business Alliance for Commerce and Hemp. And I looked at that and I'm like, bingo. Okay, that's what I want. You know, business people who want to do business with hemp. This is what I'm interested in. I want to make this happen. So I called up the number and I got a hold of a gentleman uh, by the name of Chris Conrad. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him at all. I've heard his name. Uh, yeah, he was the editor, actually, of uh, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. So uh, he had, after he had helped edit the book and got it out there, uh, he formed this organization, uh, Business Alliance for Commerce and Hemp. So I talked with him. He's like, oh, by the way, uh, you know, I'm located here in Los Angeles and, you know, right near, you know, not far from where I lived. And he says, oh, and we're having a meeting, you know, next Thursday night, you know, something like that. And, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, uh, out of anywhere in the entire country is right here in L.A. You know, and I, you know, I'm right here. So I just come out of college and, uh, you know, while I smoked marijuana, I certainly wasn't a hippie. <laughs> I mean, I was just I'm a regular guy. So uh, when I showed up, I was very much in a business uh, mindset. So I wore a suit and tie. You know, I had a briefcase. It was a clean cut. You know, I looked great, you know, and I go to the apartment, walk up the stairs, knock on the door, the door opens up and a cloud of marijuana smoke billows out, you know, and it was almost like the record player stopped and it was like, I walked back into the 1960s or something. It was a bunch they told of- you were the feds, didn't it? They probably- Yeah, they actually did. Yeah, that's why I said the, you know, the, uh, the record skipped at that moment and everyone kind of looked at me. Uh, but then I walked in and, you know, began to talk to people and, you know, those people were very accepting and, you know, uh, it, you know it was a good vibe. So we began to talk about him and during the night, more people arrived, including Jack Herrera even showed up that night. I mean, he was from the LA area as well. And 
uh, by the end of the night, I was excited. I was happy. I was ready to go. And I wanted to do something. I didn't know where to begin. So I volunteered to work for the Business Alliance for Commerce and Hemp. So I used to go in uh, twice a week after my other job. And I would uh, go and I'd work there, you know, and, and help out. And I kind of learned everything and learned what was going on. Uh after, oh, about maybe five or six months of this, the uh, Chris Conrad wanted to leave to go to Europe to write his own hemp book. Uh, he, I think he felt like, you know, he edited the book for Jack Herrera. Now it was time for him to write his own book. So he went out there and, he, and, and so he left, went to Europe, and I ended up subleasing his apartment. And I ended up running, you know, bought, you know, the Business Alliance of Promise. And he was gone for about maybe a little over a year. You know, uh, during that time, I learned more about the hemp industry. I learned where I could get hemp from. Uh, I found a source for hemp fabric from China. And uh, by uh, 93, I had formed my company, ordered the fabric. It arrived in January of 1993. So I'm going to say my business began, I'm sorry, it arrived December 93. So I believe my business began January 1994. And, you know, then I started and yeah, it was really difficult. You know, I, wow. I had to, yeah, I worked, I had a full-time job and I worked out of a studio apartment. You know, to do it. What took me, I always like to say, you know, I had a plan on, you know, how far and how fast I was going to get. And literally where I thought I was going to be in about five years, it took me 20 years you know, to get there that much longer. You know? Wow. Now, uh, things are getting better in certain ways. And then at least now we can grow hemp here. Uh, things are a little more legal, you know, marijuana laws have changed, but we're still uh, suffering from uh, lack of free trade and oh, uh, unnecessary uh, regulations uh, from government and also unnecessary taxes, you know, that are, that are thrown on and on top of everything. And all of that are hindering uh, the growth of the hemp industry here. Although I, most of my business, I'm still importing, you know, fabric from China is my main supplier. But since then, I have started making fabrics here in the Los Angeles area. Mm. Although I still have to import the yarn. Uh, we are not at the point in America where we're actually really making hemp yarns on a commercial basis where we can start trying to knit or weave here in the United States. Not yet, I still have to import those. But uh, we now have the opportunity to start growing uh, hemp for a lot of non-woven uses here in the U.S. where long, long distance transportation would not make any sense. Wow. So... My mind jumps with a bunch of of of, of yeah, I know. Awesome, since you no, 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 no. I mean, you were as Barbara Mandrell would say, you were country before country was cool, man. I mean, yeah. you were you were out here to be able to you're able to be right. run with it, you know. So, um, so how did you determine what products made from hemp that you would not offer under hemp? Traders. Well, I, you know, in, in, in the early days, uh, I would say from, you know, I, I'd say even the first 20 years, practically from 1990 to 2010, it was uh, basically it was either marijuana or industrial at that wow. point. 
And okay. at that point, industrial did not mean uh, CBD. There was no CBD at that point. So industrial was generally grain and fiber was how it was defined. Marijuana was the flower. And uh, in, the, in the early days, we, we got a lot of criticism from people saying the only reason we were supporting hemp was because we wanted to legalize marijuana. It was a backdoor Trojan horse. Right. Yeah, we, we used to get a lot of that. And while I think just about everyone in the hemp industry was in favor of legalizing marijuana, that wasn't the case. I mean, we wanted hemp to be legal as hemp. We wanted to be able to use it for all of the industrial purposes. So uh, because of that, we didn't want that stigma. We uh, there, There's kind of a wedge between the two that point. And I was firmly in the industrial part. So then it was either do grain or fiber. And originally I was thinking uh, we were able to get hemp seeds early on as, as it was being imported for use in bird seed uh, back in the 90s. And uh, people began to make a uh, know, hemp seed milk or you know, like a milk substitute from hemp, which is available now. But early on, you know, I had the choice. I wasn't sure what to do, but I found the source of fabric and I actually bought some, but it took, you know, wasn't selling like I thought. Then there was this other option for me to get into the food industry uh, with a soy, you know, uh, hemp, uh, hemp milk, you know, that I could do. And, you know, I kind of had to make a decision and I just decided I didn't want to get involved in food. Uh, I figured there'd be too much risk in people getting ill. You know, somebody ate something and didn't feel well. So I, I'm like, I don't want to be involved in the food industry. I'm going to sit up with the fiber. And uh, the, uh, so I'm stuck with that. And then I've always tried to stay away you know, from marijuana early on. And then when the CBD uh, first became popular about 2012, 13, 14, uh, even 15, there was a lot of pressure on me to get into that industry. From early on, people asked me if I could supply it for them to later on investors coming to me asking if I would make my company public if I would also sell CBD products or somehow be involved in the CBD CBD industry. And I, actually, I uh, sent no to all of those uh, early on, although the first one uh you know, people were asking me for CBD and I kind of was able to find it a little bit. But, you know, their offer to me was so low, it just wasn't worth the risk. Now, later I found out what the true value was. It could have possibly made money early on, but it was involving getting CBD out of China because that's the only place I knew. And, you know, I had a talk with my partners over there and they were like, look, Larry, you know, it's one thing when we're over here doing textiles. He says, there's no no one's questioning what we're doing. He says, but if we begin to collect all the flowers, he says, you know, somebody could claim we're in the drunk business. And he says, you know, over here in China, you know, you, you, you go to jail right away for it. And it right. matter. So we just decided it wasn't really worth the risk early on to get into it over there. Now, attitudes have changed and now they're even producing it in China. But what happened uh, with CBD, and I kind of began to realize this early on, I think by about 2015 or 16, I, you know, I, you know, I was seeing the price getting lower, 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 lower. 
and it just completely dropped out after 2000 or 2000, late 2018, they legalized it federally. So a lot of people grew in 2019. And when that crop came out, the prices up below almost then it was you know, below what people put into it. Yeah. No doubt. Right. No doubt. And yeah, and, and and the problem with that, there's nothing wrong with CBD. And here's the thing: the same thing's happening with marijuana, and it's just. And, and I'll give you the analogy. Uh, even if somebody were uh, were a fairly heavy smoker, you know, marijuana or CBD or any cannabinoids, you know. You, know, you probably the very maximum would be maybe two or three pounds a year, you know, if that, you know, when you can right. smoke or, you know, extract from it. Uh, he, any human being just cannot yet really take any more. And you, if anyone who has a backyard can grow it themselves, two or three pounds, you know, and so. You know, for everyone in America and probably, I think we figured around 80,000 acres of hemp of CBD would be able to give a CBD to every person in America. Now, almost the same thing with marijuana, you know, maybe more than 80,000, but, you know, even if I give it 150 or 200,000, it doesn't really put it in the top of value. Although, ironically, money-wise, it is, people are still getting a lot of money out of it. Uh, but overall, as a crop for farmers, fully legal, it's just too easy. <laughs> you know, it, it really is. I'm sure people will argue with me that it's not easy and it doesn't take expertise. And I agree. You know, if you want to grow it right and get the best cannabis at, you know, the best flavors and all that and have it look good, that doesn't take skill. But you know, we're talking people who are going to grow it on the farm, maybe 10 20, 30, 40, 50 acres at a time. And they're, they will grow it in a way, maybe not as good as your way, but you know, if you're going to end up with a subtracted CBD, it doesn't really matter. You know, so prices are going to go down. Now I will contrast this with the fiber and grain industry. Now uh, we can look at the example of Canada. Canada actually legalized grain hemp, I believe 97 or 98. You know, they, in, in interesting, we began to talk about him in the early 90s. Sensible governments made the changes by the late 90s. European, Europe changed their laws in the late 90s, and Canada changed their laws, and I think even Australia possibly, to allow for industrial hemp. America didn't do it until uh, 2019, so 20 years later that happened. So in Canada, since they legalized it to grow, their first thing they went for was grain or hemp seeds, you know, being used for grain. And the sure. first company up the first two companies that made it, it was Hemp Oil Canada and Manitoba Harvest. And what they did was they were uh contracting farmers to grow for grain. They buy it, uh press it for the oil. And from that, you would get oil and then, you know, seed paint, or they would take the seed and they would shell it. And then you would have a uh, whole type of seeds. Uh, they did very well. <laughs> you know that yeah. those yeah, businesses yeah. grew. Uh, and uh, you can know because today you can go to just about any store anywhere. And uh, you can find uh, hemp seed oil and uh, roasted hemp seeds or, or just whole hemp seeds are available. It's, you know, not just health food stores, but anyone will have it. Sure. Now, there hasn't been a drawback to that, and that is 
surprisingly, the students are only allowed for human consumption. And it hasn't gone beyond the human consumption model. I don't think they're selling much for any other purposes, uh, such as industrial yet. And what we're waiting for is the ability to be able to use it for animal feed. Sure. And uh, when we do that, uh, a lot, lot, lot more will be uh, able to be used. And it's just a lot of hurdles. Uh, no doubt. We're big yeah, time supporters of the Hemp Feed Coalition. And so we're right. All, right. We love what they're doing. And yeah. Yeah. I know her uh, hunter over there. Wonderful girl. Uh, and, you know, she, they've laid it out and it's just the government is treating hemp seed is like a, a kind of a foreign additive, kind of if I came up with some uh, uh, feed treatment, you know, that I wanted to add to animal feed. Ginseng. Uh, right. Yeah, right. Excuse me one minute, my dog walked in. I got to get her out or she's going to make noise. One second. All right, sure. One of the beauties of us all kind of hanging together. Hey, look, if are any questions out there, Michael? You yeah. may have one you want to prime the pump on a little bit and get uh, uh, put some questions in the check box there, so we'll be able to get to that in just a second. But right, so um, yeah, I'll, I'll just finish. The government treats it almost like a foreign additive that you're putting in instead of just a natural product that should not be even be subject to any of these laws. So you know, it, it, it puts a lot of. Uh, uh, onerous uh, responsibilities on the hemp industry, let's say farmers, growers, anyone, you have to be able to prove that it's safe for all the animals. And right. it's almost treated like a drug trial. You know, you have to kind of prove, do tests, show the animal to get sick. And not only do you have to do it for, uh, you know, to prove it for an ant one animal, you also have to do it for every single animal. And if you give it in a different form, like, for example, if somebody were to feed whole hemp seeds to an animal, which probably would be fine, you'd have to get the, you know, the permission and the testing. If you were to then just separate the oil and put, add a little oil to their feed or add the uh, protein powder, the leftover powder to feed, you need to do the, all that testing again even though it's the same thing. Yeah. So it, it, it makes it really, really hard. Uh, so uh, I believe what they're focusing on right now is, I think, dog and cat. I think might well, be laying hands is what yeah. the Big Coalition has started with, is on laying mm -hmm. hands and being able to get that information. But there are some states, I know like Montana, that went in and said, okay, what can we carve out on some type of animal we're not going to eat, right? Like mm -hmm. a dog or a cat. So they got it okay for horses, for um, other uh, pets, you know, like if, you know, a llama. Right, or, yeah, or yeah. Like yeah, yeah right. Things that aren't, you aren't going to eat. Yeah, right, right. And so that. if you're not, then that would be kind of the first part. But each state having to go back and do that, and, and depending on how much hemp is grown, and right, that's got its whole life to it. And so that's why I'm glad we're not a lobbying organization. We can support those that are, but we're, right. we're, we're glad to be a part of that too. Hey, um, tell me, though, what would you say as it relates to the textiles? Um, uh, I, I'm going to make an assumption here that you would love to know that you could supply everybody, all of your customers with American-made textiles that were here if you could. Uh, yes. But um, where do you think the where do you think the chokehold is? Is it is it uh, demand? Is it um, 
people would know how to process it once they actually could cognize it or do that piece? Is it processing? Where do you right. think is really, is it all of it? I mean, yeah, well, uh, uh, a lot of it or, you know, everything is involved, but I can kind of tell you, you know, the cool is to be able to at least get Americans to grow hemp here, at least get the farmers to be able to do it. So, when we do that, I'm thinking, hey, how much of hemp can I have done in America? And I kind of have to take the path of least resistance. Okay. Certain things you can do, but at one point, the price gets so high that no one wants to pay for the product. And, and it's just at that point, it's not really worth the effort if no one's willing to buy it. And that's also been some people say, why isn't hemp more popular? Well, it's always been more expensive uh, than other fibers that are out there. Uh, the reason for that is, one, if we compare it to uh, cotton and certain other fibers, those uh, crops are subsidized. So it allows them to be sold on the market at a cost that's lower than uh, than it is really to produce it, uh, number one. And then number two, there's the uh, scale of, um, or, or I should say the economy of scale. Cotton, is, there's like a million times more cotton grown in the world than there is hemp. Sure. So that means, you know, every single cost along the way is lowered, you know, when Go you down. do it, you know, you know, and, and to get from the actual cotton or the hemp to an actual finished uh, fabric and then even the garment, there's a lot of steps involved. It, it, I always like to joke that the most complicated thing you can do with a hemp plant is to turn it into a textile. You know, the, I mean, forget about the CBD extraction, things like that. That is all simple compared to what you need to do. And it's also not only being able to do it, but do it on an economy of scale that the cost is low enough that it begins to make sense. Now, uh, we found that in China. China is the only country, one of the only countries that has actually had a history of working with hemp and have actively been making the fabrics, and they have gotten way ahead of anyone else in terms of the technology. So early on, you know, I've always had to import it. Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, trying to do at least some things in America, I've imported the yarns and we brought them here. So at least we're getting some jobs by allowing it to be knitted here in, in America. Uh, ends up being a little more expensive you know, overall, but still people like it. And here's the interesting thing. The quality was actually better, though, when we did it here. So that was good. I believe that. Now, in terms of growing hemp, uh, I have my uh, guy in China, or my people that are making hemp in China, usually they started out always using Chinese hemp, but there's even not enough hemp being grown in China now to satisfy the demand. So they're starting to import hemp from Europe. And he told me, he says, look, I'd love, it would make more sense for me to import this hemp from the U.S. So there is a way to do this, and there is an out for it, and it's quite a bit. Uh, they can use, I worked it out, uh, I think it was something like three, um, 300,000 uh, uh, tons you know, of fiber. It was, it was, or let me think. I got that right. There are thousands of three hundred tons. I, I have to look back at my notes, but it was, um, it, you know, it, it would have been something like, uh, you know, six thousand acres we'd have to grow here to be able to supply it. Yeah. Uh, so 
if we can do that and supply it, I have a buyer. Okay. And what would happen is it would go back across the ocean, you know, get made into textiles, or it was made into yarn, and then come back over here. And while people may complain about, oh, why does it have to ship so far? And that's not good for the environment. I would argue that ocean freight is the cheapest freight and the best for the environment than anything else. It um, actually, uh, for me to send a uh like a container from la to china is the same cost practically as it is for me to send it from la to san francisco wow yeah because ocean freight is very cheap very environmental so if it's just going across the ocean they work on it and they send it back that's actually the freight on that would be like from here to texas considering both ways, you know, on it. So it's not a bad situation to have. And then from here, we can distribute it. If uh, we get uh, factories here in the U.S. to be able to make textiles from hemp, I'd certainly love to be able to supply it, but that just hasn't, isn't happening. We never really made textiles from hemp here. It was not on a modern scale or in a modern method, but on the other hand, there is going to be a market for all the non-woven uses for the fibers. So and that's going to be things like the insulation. It's going to be um, composites. Uh, it could be uh, paper, um, uh, filters, things of that nature, right. uh, where the hemp fiber can possibly work. And then, of course, we also have the herd fiber, which could be for hempcrete, horse bedding, construction, pro- construction projects. And if we get it cheap enough, there's a filler for glassidents. Yeah, yeah, I think that's where we're all headed, and that's why we're mm-hmm. glad to be a part of it. Hey, we had a question from our our, our friend Michael, uh, this, tell, let's talk about genetics for just a second. Do you think, how long do you think it's going to be before we really get some identified, available, stable fiber genetics that we can grow in the United States on a on an industrial scale? All right. Well, this year, uh, 2021, after almost 30 years in hemp, or 31 years, I finally grew hemp for the first time. <laughs> and uh, it came out uh, spectacularly well, all right, better than I ever imagined it would. Uh, I used, I would say, I guess my 30 years of knowledge in the hemp industry to try to do it right. So I was able to locate the proper fiber varieties from China. You know, that's where they're growing it for fiber. Those are the right varieties. And we got them here. And then I grew it in California at the right latitude. And we were fortunate in that California, you know, is far enough north that, you know, and the hemp will work with the change of the seasons. Uh, but it's far, far enough south that we really don't have a winter here. You know, things don't really freeze in the Central Valley. We don't get right. snow there. So we were able to get our plants in the ground uh, March 5th uh, this year. And because of that, uh, you know, they ended up growing, 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 growing. And we ended up getting on one hand, on one end of the spectrum, uh, the world's tallest attempt plant. Yeah, we really did. You never saw that picture. We posted it on uh, social media and it really made the rounds. I mean, standing next to it, and I'll certainly share it with you. But uh, what happened, it was 24 feet tall. And uh, I ended up submitting it to the Innocent World Records and they agreed to um, 
I would say, accept the submission. And we're just waiting for them to confirm it, which we should have very soon. But it will be the world's tallest attempt plant. And uh, full disclosure, when I did check on that record, nobody had ever done it before. So we were the How first. about that? Yeah. Well, so, well, that's what it means to be long in the tooth, as my grandma Right. Said. Yes. You, when you've and been then, there that long, that's a victory for you. Right. Now, that's one thing. The other thing is production. And that is uh, ever since I got started in the industry, I was uh, relying on some government research papers. Uh, one one of them was called Fiber Crops uh, by James. See, I actually have it right here. Mm-hmm. And because hemp was outlawed in the U.S. in 1937, I think, uh, because it was outlawed, there really hasn't been any more research done, you know, on the fiber aspects and how to grow uh, grow it. So I had to uh, look at all this research that was done uh, around the early, for, you know, first 20 to 30 to 40 years of the 20th century was where all the papers were. So uh, this one I showed you, fiber crops, they talk about, you know, here's how to plant it. This is what you're going to get out of what you get. This will be the basset fiber. This will be the herd fiber right on down the line. So uh, they were going by averages. They got mostly in Kentucky, as I said early on. We grew in here in California and we smashed the records. We got like 25 to 30 percent more than those uh, what people got early on. So that was really unexpected by me. And so what does that mean? That means that if we can get higher yields, uh, that means the costs for all of these things will go down. You know, it makes it more viable for the farmer to grow. And I do believe, uh, you know, this year, uh, sorry, I have a phone ringing. That's all right. this year. Uh, Don't stop capitalism, man. I mean, yes, I know. Uh, somebody will get that. Okay. Um, uh, it means, you know, we can, we can get these products at a lower cost. And it means that it makes it more likely that the industry is going to be able to work. And everything we learned this year uh, on how to grow, we're going to apply that knowledge to next year. And I think we're going to be able to get that even higher. No, in fact, I, I know we're going to get it higher, so I know exactly what we have to do to get, right. get higher yields per acre using modern technology. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the things we found out was we use drip irrigation. So where we, uh, we were able to measure the exact quantity of water that we put onto the field, and that was compared to the cotton that's growing right next door, and we found that hemp uses about 20% less water than cotton. And we actually approved it. How about that? Not no water, which has been a rumor. It doesn't. Yeah, no, not no water. Right absolutely, absolutely. That's a silly water. rumor that you hear every once right. in a while, though. People think that that's right. Right. But one of the rumors did turn out to be correct. And that is we did not need any, actually, two of the rumors. We did not need any herbicides or pesticides. When we grew the crop, it, 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 uh, that part didn't need anything. The only thing that was a little artificial on it was we added a nitrogen fertilizer to the uh, drip irrigation system on a couple of times to add nitrogen fertilizer to the crop. Now, I'll, be. I'll be. That's great. Well, man, you're not only just um, 
brokering it and figuring it out and how to get into those niche pieces of, of, of all those different markets. But now that you become a grower as well, we'll circle back around to see how we can loop you into the co-op and be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. A, and I'm, I'm actually writing a paper. Hold on, I'll show you something. Okay. That's good. We got for those of us that are listening. I'm talking about me growing it. Here's a paper I'm writing on the experience. Can you read that? Okay. Yeah, I can. How to grow fiber hemp in California. And where's the where's the big twenty four one? Uh, right, uh, one? Is see, that behind it? Yeah. Yeah. Look, look at both of those, and then I'll yes. show you one other one. All right, and then I have another picture. And folks, we'll put all this back on our website too, so let folks be able to see. Good gravy. Look at there. <laughs> Those of us that are dialing in are getting to watch some pretty cool stuff. So that's great for us to be able to see all those pieces of, of what's going on with that today. That's terrific. That's terrific. Mm -hmm. Very much. Hey, Lawrence, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for what you've done for the industry. Thank you for laying some pathways for folks like us that are a little bit later to the party uh, than you are. But because the potential is there, there's kind of a room for everybody in the pool, right? So um, um, as long as we're all legit and we're all trying to get to the same spot, that's something that's, something that's certainly meaningful and something that's important for us to be able to do. Remind everybody how they can get back in touch with you and learn more about hemp traders and your other ventures. All right. And one other thing, I'm just looking at Michael's question. If you don't mind, I'd like oh, to no, no. just answer it a little bit more. It says, how long do you think it will be genetics are identified? Okay. So I brought in the right genetics uh, last year. They worked spectacularly. But these genetics are, I would call them wild. They're not certified seed. You know, I brought it in from China. And while when we grew it, we ended up harvesting early prior to any flowering. Because of that, our genetics were very low. But, I mean, the THC levels are either zero or hardly showed up. But if you do allow it to flower, uh, it is variable. You test it in the flower and some would be below 0.3, but some of it might be 0.6, 1.2. So it get a little dangerous if you take it that uh, that way. Uh, I've given some of the seed to people who are doing breeding programs. So hopefully maybe they can create from our strain. They'll be able to create uh, genetics. Otherwise, we're kind of holding on to some of our seed as well. I got you. Well, we need to get you looped around with our chief agronomist as well. And you mm -hmm. got it. we can talk all the uh, diaceous, monacious, and every kind of aceous that somebody wants to talk to about all of that, too. So mm -hmm. give us your contact info real quick for everybody. In, uh, all so right. Well, uh, uh, my company, Hemp Traders, uh, you can find it at uh, hemptraders.com. Uh, you can contact me personally, my email at contact at hemptraders.com. I see all those emails. Uh, if you also want to look at some of the other things I've done, we have the website canagrove.com, C-A-N-N-A-G-R-O-V-E, that talks about the hemp board I created. Yeah. And then uh, there's riverdalehempfactory.com that shows uh, what we've done uh, up in Riverdale growing hemp this year. Love it. Oh, love it, love and it. And then one last oh, yes, call. Yes. We have a YouTube channel. So if you go to YouTube and look up Hemp Traders, uh, you'll see all the videos we created this year of growing the hemp. So you'll see us planning it, 
checking out the, you know, the weeds, uh, harvesting it, processing it. It's all on those YouTube videos. Uh, we're very proud of those. As you should be. That's terrific. Hey, Lawrence, thank you so much. Happy holidays to you folks. Um, understand that uh, uh, the podcast and the webinars are taking off for the rest of the year. So, Lawrence, you get to close out our first season for us. But um, um, check back in January. You will have all of our uh, podcasts will be on our website at uh, National Hemp Co-op dot uh, us and those will all be uploaded today so depending on what time you're hearing this or when the podcast actually came out go back and check out our past episodes um uh we've got uh you 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 tapped us out lawrence at uh, at number 39 i think so at least we know that we've been uh somewhat consistent which has been a great thing so right uh until next time uh thanks everyone for tuning in all right thank, thank you again, lawrence okay bye-bye This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.